0: All right, John chapter 12, we're going to continue along in our study of the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26. And before we read this section, I want to point your attention to verse 24. Okay, let me read verse 24 in isolation for a moment here. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's this word picture or illustration that Jesus is sharing with his people, and it's this idea of a a little grain of wheat and how growth occurs, how life occurs organically. And I want you, if you would, just for a moment, picture with me kind of like, you know those time-lapse videos where they take hours of time or maybe even days of time and And crunch it all down and speed it up so you can watch it happen very rapidly. Something that takes a longer period of time. Well just picture, I don't dare try to show you a video of this this morning. I was thinking about showing a video, I'm really glad I didn't go with that. Let's just use our brains, it's safer. Uh, Let's just picture for a moment that little grain, okay? Sinking there down into the soil and breaking down, breaking apart. Kind of like crumbling there. And by appearances, that's the end, that's the demise of that little grain. Like that just looks like the end. It's decomposing, it's going to disintegrate, that's it. But we know how life works in terms of organic growth. We know that the way God designed things to work, that little grain, as it breaks down there in the fertile soil... New life sprouts from that grain, doesn't it? And then a stalk grows, and it grows bigger and bigger, taller and taller, and it grows to become two feet or up, upwards of four or five feet tall. And then at the head of that stalk, there are many grains, 30 grains, sometimes as many as 50 or 60 grains, that come from just that one little grain that seemingly all hope was lost for that thing. In that soil, breaking down, decomposing, and yet... New life springs forth. And not just new life, but abundant life, fruitfulness, multiplication of grains, just from that one little grain breaking down. This is the idea. This is what Jesus borrows from nature to teach us something very important about how our God operates in this world and how God produces life where there is seemingly or apparently only death. God has been doing this from the beginning. And he will always be doing this until we're home. And there's something really important and really valuable for us to learn in terms of relating to our Creator and understanding what He's up to in the life of Jesus and everything we're seeing here in John's Gospel and in our lives today as well. So there's a lot for us to learn this morning. Okay, So let's now talk about the context a little bit and then we'll begin reading and working our way through the passage. The context is... We've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, one of the most amazing miracles to this point. Following that miracle, people are gathered there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and many people are crowding around and and milling around and doing all their different celebratory activities. All of that's going on, and there is this triumphal entry where Jesus enters town on the back of a donkey and Pastor Rob preached on that last week and people stood there watching him waving palm branches and crying out Hosanna save us now Lord and saying things like blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord it was the the coronation of the king it was this moment though short-lived it was this moment in which they were viewing Jesus as their king at least temporarily they were And again, all these people were there. Well, included in this crowd, this giant crowd there congregating in Jerusalem were many Gentiles. And so we pick it up there in verse 20, where it says, Now there were some Greeks, or Gentiles, among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew... Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So there are these Gentiles who are interested in seeing Jesus. They were aware of the fanfare. They knew what was happening. And they were curious. They wanted to see this miracle worker, as any of us would have, right? So Philip, who knows Jesus personally, he tells Andrew. And then the two of them, they come and they tell Jesus Hey, these Gentiles are interested in seeing you. Now, we would expect that Jesus would say, great, bring them to me. And certainly Jesus wants them to see him. But for this moment, he has something else very important in mind. So look at verse 23. It says there, Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Now, throughout John's gospel, you you probably don't remember, but several times prior to this point, we have seen reference to this hour. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. This is places where where John wrote, uh, they did not seize him yet because his hour had not yet come. Well, here Jesus himself says the hour has come. The time has come. Like the culmination of his life and ministry, we're there now. The hour has come. And he says it's the hour of my glorification Now, I'm sure if we were there with them, we would have been thinking, wow, this is is it. And we've already seen some pretty amazing things from the beginning. Turning water into wine, healing many people. In John's Gospel alone, there's the healing of the lame man, the healing of the blind man, the the raising of Lazarus, we just considered, which was amazing. All these miracles and all these displays of glory and greatness and power. And so they were surely thinking, this is going to be amazing. This is it. The king is here. Everything is going to be glorious and spectacular and we're going to get to share in that and delight in that. I mean they were surely thinking that way. They must have been. Plot twist. Plot twist. This is the most remarkable of all plot twists. Where God by design had other plans than what Humans were thinking that what they were anticipating and expecting. For a moment, consider the storyline of your life. I am sure any of you who have lived any length of time would tell me, oh yeah, my life has had many plot twists, many things that have happened that were unexpected, many twists and turns, ups and downs that I did not anticipate. God is the author of human history. He's the author of our lives and he often writes these plot twists into our stories. And here we see the ultimate plot twist, the plot twist in the story of Jesus. In one sense, it's the plot twist that that all of the Bible is testifying to. It's this really important, necessary plot twist that goes against our human intuition, our human way of thinking, and yet it's the display of God's higher ways and God's higher thoughts and it is going to be really good just good in ways that are different than what we ordinarily desire so there is this principle and Jesus now we're back in verse 24 this is where he shares this principle or this word picture this illustration of life coming through death and so he says truly truly which is like saying listen up Please get this. Truly, truly, surely, surely, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Notice he begins with what would happen if it did not die. He says, unless it dies, what happens? It remains alone. Obviously here, Jesus is looking forward to his own death. Which is coming very soon. And there's a sense in which he's saying, unless I die, there cannot be a relational connection that there needs to be. My death is necessary that there be this relational connection. That if the life of God is to flow to mankind. If man is to have a relationship with God. If you and I are to have a relationship with God. It must, there must be a death. It requires a death a sacrificial death and so he uses this agricultural reference this commonly understood phenomenon he uses this to illustrate what has to happen you see God pours his life into this world through death God does not avoid Death. God does not run an end-around play or leapfrog over it or its anguish. He faces it head-on and works through death in order to bring life. This is remarkable. This is, again, not not how we ordinarily operate. And yet this is the most, uh, His cross, Christ's cross, which we just finished singing about, is the most fruitful single event of all time. I, I know of no other No more beneficial or fruitful single event than the crucifixion of Jesus and, of course, all that would follow and all that would result from that. I mean, can you think of anything more fruitful, more beneficial than that in terms of the most important things, in terms of the things of God, in terms of the things of his life, in terms of the things of his love? For that to happen, the cross was necessary This one day, thousands of years ago, just a few hours, relatively speaking, which has impacted all of human history. Everything before this point and everything after, right up to our day today. No more crucial moment, no more consequential moment in this world, in human history, than Christ's cross. But, (laughs) did it look like the most fruitful Event did it? Did these look like the most fruitful hours? Did it look like victory? Not exactly. Looked looked more like defeat. Didn't look like success. Looked like failure. Didn't look honorable. Looked shameful. I mean, we have a especially as as Christians, and we have as a cross above me, and we have crosses some of us hanging around our neck, and we see the the, the symbol of the cross so frequently, and yet we sterilize it. We, we, sometimes we fail to appreciate just how gruesome and abhorrent, just how visually offensive and objectionable the cross was and the cross is in terms of someone viewed as a criminal dying naked and in excruciating pain and shamed. That doesn't fit with our images of glistening, glowing, glorious realities, does it? It seems like the opposite of that. And yet, if if the essence of glory is the value and substance and weight of who God is, if the essence of glory is that which is most valuable and most worthy, Then it begins to make sense because this is where the character of God is displayed in the most clearest fashion. Which is why Jesus says now is the time for the real miracle to occur. Where people who are otherwise dead in trespasses and sins, dead in alienation from God, dead in aloneness. This is the moment that brings about the unification of God and man. In a way that only God could accomplish. Having written this amazing plot twist into his story, Jesus is now about to live it out. And he says, this is it. This is where it happens. This is where mankind is rescued by his creator. What seemed like only darkness was actually shining God's great light. What seemed like only the outpouring of hate was actually the outpouring of God's love. It's the cross, and like that little grain dying, but sprouting with new life. God will bring new life. Of course, resurrection life. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and then assures us that. All that is necessary for salvation has been accomplished and we have hope of resurrection as well. But here... He has for His disciples to consider. See, the disciples back then, just like, just like us, th- this was a major plot twist to them too. Th- this was, it didn't fit with what they were expecting or wanting. Remember, the disciples right before this period of time, um, or, or should say right around this period of time, not sure exactly when this fell, but right around this period of time, the disciples are arguing and debating about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? Right, who, who's going to get to sit in the most elevated seat? And James and John even got their mom involved in the situation, trying to <laughs> apply some leverage for them to get a more prestigious spot. Peter says, oh, this is never going to happen to you. These, and all these bad things, you're, no, they're never going to happen. This doesn't fit. You're the king, and we're going to reign and rule with you. And that's, that's what makes sense. And, and Jesus says to him, uh, get behind me, Satan, meaning you, Peter, you don't know. This has to happen has to happen. So he's he's teaching them something and he's teaching us something. and, And this is where, look where he goes next in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And then verse 26, our last verse. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here he turns his attention toward his disciples and basically says, you you too are being invited to come and and die. If he was here with us today, he'd be saying, "You, you too are being invited to come with me and die. This is very much like other places in the Gospels where Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow me. If, if you're not willing to turn away from your even your own family members and come and follow me. In those same contexts, he says, if, if you're not willing to, to lose your life, you'll never find it. It's the same idea. And so here he says, he who loves his life, he who cherishes his life or his soul. What ends up actually happen, happening? He says, he loses it. That word loses could be translated, he ruins it or destroys it. This is something that you've heard me mention quite a bit and it's because of probably just my own life experiences and counseling people and dealing with the messy stuff of humanity. I've become increasingly convinced that we are all really good at self-sabotaging. That the, The more we kind of fixate on things and obsess over things and preoccupy ourselves with things and try to control things and especially try to control other people, the more we bring ruin and destruction. We do it because we're trying to preserve what we think we need for life and we end up wreaking havoc and experiencing the consequence of destruction as a result. And, and Jesus is saying something about this here where he's saying, well, as, you, as you cling to life, you, you actually ruin it. And on the flip side, he who hates his life in this world, which is hyperbole in a way of saying if you just let it go, that's when you actually experience life. is when instead of trusting yourself and your resources and your strategies when you begin to just trust God your life period you're all I've got he says then there is life eternal true life the most important kind of life the the non-temporal non-fragile kind of life and all that goes with eternal life all that is characterized with reference to the life of god which is his love and his joy and his peace and all these fruitful things and they require a dying remember what he said in verse 24 Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Thinking of the old, I think it's, um, I think it's a Sesame Street song. One is the loneliest number. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he depicts hell as like a huge town with millions of houses where. Everybody is constantly moving farther and farther away from each other because they can't stand each other. They're consumed with themselves and everyone else is seen as an inconvenience, a threat, opposition, and so they just keep going further and further into isolation. Proverbs 18:1 says, "He who separates himself seeks his own desire, he quarrels against all sound wisdom." Now there are times, especially for us parents, um, maybe grandparents too, maybe not as much. but really for any human, there are times when we just want to be alone. <laughs> Can I just be alone? And then sometimes we, we get to where we're finally alone and there's peace and quiet. And we, oh, we just exhale. And then we think, oh, this is kind of lonely and boring. Where, I, need to, I need to go talk to somebody. We were not created to be alone. We were created to be in relationship with our God. We were created to be in relationship with other people. That looks different for each of us. We have families and friends and some of us very small families some of us are not married some of us are some of us have kids some of us don't it doesn't matter we're all in these interconnected relationships and people can't live with them can't live without them right there's just just something designed that way And some of what Jesus is saying here, both in the vertical in terms of man being in relationship with God, and in terms of man being in relationship with man, dying needs to take place. The dying of Jesus had to take place for us to be in relationship, restored relationship, reconciled to our God. The death of Jesus had to take place for that. Someone had to absorb all the hate, all the wrath, all the judgment. Someone had to absorb that for us to be in union with our God. And Jesus said, I will do it. I will take it. And here he's saying to his disciples back then, today as well, if you're going to bear fruit, there's going to have to be a dying. If there's going to be the things that matter most to God, the things of life and love and relationship, there's going to have to be a dying. I remember, when I was trying to get through this without crying, I remember when my first daughter was born. And being there in the hospital, of course, for just maybe a few days, and then we brought her home. And for those who have children, you, you remember exactly what this feels like. You, you see this little baby, and you think how miraculous that God took a part of you and a part of your wife, and, and now there's this new life. And, and you feel immediately the sense of love and uh, nurturing, and you feel as a, as, a, as a dad and as a mom too, but as a dad you feel protective, like I, I would die for this baby. And then you bring her home. And it's uh, one of the first nights, and your wife is exhausted, so she's sleeping in the next room over, and you're sitting there with your baby on your lap, and I'm sitting there with Juliana. And for some reason... For what felt like three or four hours, probably really ten minutes, but she just kept screaming and crying, on and on. Just her face was bright red. It just I remember it very vividly, just screaming, and and, and um and it just went. And I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't want to wake up Jill. I just remember that feeling. Of, I don't know what to do here. And then as it went on and on, however long it went, the the sense of like, I could feel my impatience. I could feel my fatigue, I was tired. I, I could feel like this re- resentment toward like all these other things and I, I can't afford th- this time right now. And, th- 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 and, and, and you know what that's like, right? You, like you love someone so much. And yet they just, there's just this cost. And it's that way with a little baby and it's that way, is it not, in every single relationship. That, that every human being you know is a threat to you. To your resources, to your time, to your energy, to, to your money, to your peace of mind. I mean, everybody. And, and it brings us to, if we're, if we're just in touch with reality, it brings us to the end of ourselves. To the end where we just, I just don't, the, the stuff of true love. Like the love that never ends. The love that's unconditional. The, the love that doesn't demand you, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. The love that doesn't demand in return. Just the giving, that kind of outflow, gracious, merciful love. You just, you just come to this conclusion, wow, that's not natural to me. It's of God, and from God, and through God, and to God, and I need you, God. A book I read years ago, an author named Roy Hessian talked about A kind of like revival in the gospel. And it really ministered to me back then. And and one of the quotes in the book goes like this. He said, every humiliation, everyone who tries and vexes us is God's way of breaking us. So that there is yet a deeper channel in us for the life of Jesus. You see, the, the life that pleases God and that is victorious is his life never our life no matter how hard how hard we try and we can never be filled with his life unless we are prepared for god to bring our lives constantly to death sounds familiar doesn't it by design So often in life, there is a plot twist, and usually the ones that are the hardest is when it just is something that comes and sideswipes us, and and it just takes us down a few notches. (laughs) It it, it just feels like humiliating or dishonorable. I I was reading recently about a, a, a tenured professor who was on his way toward great accomplishments and, and great uh, respect among his peers and then through some sinful decisions that others around him made and through some sinful decisions he made, he ended up losing everything, being let go from his position, the, the record of his successful articles and other things just cleared and all of a sudden all that, that he had worked so hard to build up was just now like dead, gone. Gone. And in that testimony he talks about how how God met him there in that place. How God ministered to him there in that place. How God showed him there in that place of failure and shame and dishonor. How God showed him the value of the love of God which was still for him even in that place. Even when other people abandoned him and turned on him. Look, we, we, we do everything in our power to avoid such experiences, <laughs> to prevent such things. We don't want those things to happen, and rightfully so. It, it's good that we have kind of a, a self-preserving instinct. If we didn't, we would drive even worse than we do drive, and we would do lots of other stupid, crazy things. Like, we need to have a self-protective instinct. That's part of what God wired in for good purposes. But there's something spiritual to that that's absolutely just toxic. And sometimes God has to pry our cold, dead grip off the things that we value so much to teach us that he's enough for us, that he's life. Well, that's in some relational sense for there to be love, and you've got to realize, you know what, I just don't have love. And for you just to come clean with God, God, I don't have it. I can't love my wife or my husband, or I don't, I don't have the patience for my kid or for my neighbor. Or for, God, I just don't. And he says, yeah, you're right, you don't, because in and of yourselves, you're just dead. The the Valley of Dry Bones, Brian read it earlier from Ezekiel 37. There's that valley, and they look over the landscape, and God shows the prophet and says, what do you see? And he says, I just see decaying bodies. I just see death. And God says, yeah, there's going to be life, and where you see only death, there's going to be life, and those cells are going to regenerate, and those people are going to get up, and they're going to walk, and they're going to move, and you're going to know that it was the Lord who did it. Because only the Lord can do it. And he will do do it. And he has done it. And he did it in Jesus' life. He died and then he rose. And he's doing it in your life. And he only brings us to the end of ourselves to begin to show us more clearly the value of himself. And that's what we were created for. And that's where life is found. And that's where freedom is found. And that's that's why he says unless you just deny yourself and just get lost and raptured with who God is. And this is how he shows us. This is how he changes. The plot twist is that which takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them on him. That's how he operates. I mean, think of all the examples in this world, right? Think of just the natural world. We talked about this grain, and that's kind of a common illustration that we've been thinking about. There are many other examples Think of in, uh, if some of you are into exercising. you know for, if you want if you want to build muscle and endurance, you have to put your body through things that make you feel like you're dying. <laughs> for anyone still hanging in there with their New year's resolution, right? <laughs> you feel like you just you, and, and literally like the the cells and the fibers have to be torn and broken down for them to be rejuvenated more. Strong than they were before that has to happen that's just wired into the natural world and and then there are things like the seasons where it's it's winter and it's cold and it's dark thankfully the sun's out today it's kind of nice but it's it's cold dark and there's death but that's followed by spring when there's new life and there's warmth and there's fruitfulness and buds and blossoms and new life. You see, this like God has just worked this principle into this world that He brings His life. He pours His life out through what seems to be only death. He does it in so many different ways. He does it not only in the natural but in the spiritual as we've talked about. Where He leads us to our crosses. We talked in men's meeting in the morning about Philippians 3 and in Philippians 3 Paul goes through his whole resume. I mean it's like today if you've worked on your resume and you put down there the different degrees that you have and the different jobs you've had and what those those jobs entailed, what your responsibilities were, and, and you put down, and, and this little piece of paper, and, you, and you try, you're try you supposed to try to get it like on one sheet, right? They want it like short, otherwise people are going to just fly by. So you've got to like distill down one sheet of paper, kind of like you. Th- this is you. <laughs> and you're going to put your best foot forward and say, here you go, sir or ma'am, please consider hiring me on the basis of, my credentials, my accomplishments. And Paul in Philippians 3 says there's something about the gospel that, like, takes that sheet of paper and lights it on fire. Like, why would you ever do that? And, and he doesn't mean it just like in the natural sense. It's good that we have jobs and that we climb the ladder and that we grow and improve. That's all good. You, you've heard us talk about that a lot. It's all good. But from a spiritual standpoint, in terms of what matters most, the things of God, the things of the Spirit, the things of life, it's actually liberating when God says, Like he said to Paul, hey Paul, you've been building some life for yourself. And I'm here to take all that away so that you might learn what true life is. So that he comes to the end of it, says it's all just garbage, it's all just rubbish. The real value is knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. That's the real value. And God has so many different ways of teaching us that that is true. Teaching us to trust in Him, weaning us off of what is He killing? I'm going to ask, okay, what is it that He's like, what is He killing through those experiences, those plot twists, those unexpected, seemingly humiliating or painful Characterized by loss, th- those parts of our life. Like, what is he? What is he killing? I mean, sometimes, and I have I, had people in my office. There's times where I've felt this way. Uh, say, it feels like he's killing me. Like, God, why are you doing this to me? Are you ki- are you killing me? And and I think this is what he would say. Uh, I'm not killing you. I'm making you alive. What I'm killing is, you ready? This is really important. I'm I'm killing your independence i'm killing your self-reliance i'm killing that which in the garden of eden thousands and thousands of years ago brought about the breach in the relationship i'm killing that and for that to be killed we have to be pressed to the end pressed to the end of ourselves so that we finally look up and just cry uncle And God says, now we're getting somewhere. This is what you were made for. And now in your feelings and pangs of death, I'm going to give life. And you're going to get up, and you're going to walk, and you're going to look back, and you're going to tell people, hey, that was God's grace toward me. That was all Christ and what he did for me. That was all Jesus and how he preserved my marriage Or how Jesus redeemed the marriage that ended and the new one that I have or whatever. It was all him. He carried me through. He was kind to me. In those moments of emptiness and difficulty, I, I, I came to know something about his love and his mercy. I've seen it so many times. People going through things with estranged children, hated going through it, and never wanted to go through the, the heart-rending pain of that, and, and the, but the same person speaking to you about the love of God as a father for his children, and now they have a level of depth and understanding and wisdom that they never had before the mess ensued. And so, God says to his disciples then, hey, we're going, we're going somewhere. Uh... This just pops in my mind. Peter Peter says, Jesus, ne- never going to happen to you, and I'll die for you. I'm not going to let it happen. And Jesus says, okay, really? All right, we'll see. And then later, when Jesus, after he's resurrected, he interacts with Peter. I think it's in the, in the end of John here. He interacts with Peter, and he says, Peter, when you were young, you, you went where you wanted to go, you did what you wanted to do, but when you're old... You'll stretch forth your hands, and they will take you and seize you, and they will take you where you do not wish to go. And Again, I believe it's John who then adds this editorial note where he says, and, and in this way, Jesus told him how his death would glorify Christ. So, the point of the message this morning is not look at your life and figure out where you need to put yourself to death. How are you going to sacrifice? What are you going to do? Like, what, what, what are you going to do? take a missions trip you're gonna do this to that like those decisions have their place but but really what we're talking about here is god in his perfect wisdom as a father he knows how to bring us to death he's doing it he's orchestrating it so wherever you're at right now where you're sitting in your seat whatever's going on in your life you all got stuff going on this complex story and narrative that your life is whatever wherever there just feels like difficulty and pain and loss and uh, embarrassment or whatever it loneliness whatever it is if you can see this principle what Christ is talking about here and just understand that God's not against you he's for you he's weaning you off of that self-reliance and independence he's teaching you to trust in him He's teaching you to long for his life to be put where there is otherwise only death. That's what he's up to. That's what he's doing in in human history. We have good things to look forward to in the future, but for the time being, it's the labor pains, right? We all feel them in our own lives individually. We feel them in our country. We feel them in our world. We feel them in so many different ways. Labor pains. As God brings everything to his intended end, and, and we zoom back into our lives knowing that he is up to good. Up to good for our rescue, for our ultimate flourishing and thriving. I hope that's um, encouraging to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for its penetrating truth. Thank you for the cross of Christ Naturally speaking, we're we're confused by it, by that sort of thing. We're troubled by how Jesus was treated when he was here. Yet we also understand there's something in us that's opposed to to you and your ways because of our pride and our independence and self-centeredness. And so when we look at life and we're confronted with those realities about ourselves, we we are invited to look afresh at Jesus. To look at the one who laid his life down. To look at the one who always turned the other cheek and who always prayed for and loved and served his enemies. To look to the one who who went to his own cross, not delighting in, in the shame of it, but enduring it, for the joy set before him the joy of fruitfulness the joy of gathering to himself people being lifted up and drawing all men to himself he, he is truly our god and our savior and our hero and we look to him god and and as we live with the, the aches and the pains and the bumps and the bruises and the, the relational friction and difficulty, as we, as we have welling within us our own impatience and anger and opposition and our competitiveness and our ego and all those different manifestations of the old, of the flesh, as those things occur, God, would you please take our gaze off of ourselves and point us back toward yourself? That we would feel all the pangs of death, that we would long for the life comes from you, the life of your spirit and your provisions and your love. Thank you for this amazing paradox of the cross, where the place of Christ's crucifixion and death is also the place of the greatest transaction of all, where life is granted to those who don't deserve life. Thank you, Father, for our time in your word this morning, thank you for the the songs we've been able to sing. Thank you for the fellowship we're able to have. Thank you for this place and for each one who's here. Bless us now as we sing. And we thank you again for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.